0: Views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of the station, its management, or other
1: advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. You're tuned in
0: to Transformation Talk Radio. What do the masters want to say about well-being, about their lives, about the world, What is it the masters say that we are called to do or be?
1: Simply to believe. Believe in yourself. Believe in hope. Believe in God. Believe. Just simply believe. And the rest will follow.
0: Hey, everybody, I want to welcome you to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. And if you haven't kicked up your new year yet, let me say it is time to do it. Our theme this year is living the dream in 2013, not conjuring up the dream, but taking some action. And part of that for me is getting, a, getting into a, a deeper place of understanding with myself and the world around me. And getting ready to ask, answer the question that I ask every day. What is it that is mine to do today? And the message that I seem to get is very simple. More. Do more. <laughs> so uh, it's really fascinating to see what kind of direction that starts to take and look like. Tonight's show is I'm very, very excited about uh, tonight's guest. I'm, I mean, you know, I get to chat with a lot of people, and the depth and the breadth of what they have said yes to in their own hero's journey Is by far beyond anything that I think many of us imagine life could even be like. And that's my very special guest, Steve McIntosh, joining us here today. And he is the author of, um, well, the, the book that I have in front of me is, is called Evolution's Purposed. And this is an integral interpretation of the scientific story of our origins. But when you, when you hear Steve talk about this, you know, you're going to hear some fascinating ideas, wonderful questions, you know, traditional philosophies, do they work these days? I think many of us are living in the paradox that we can't even understand, yet we feel pulled in so many directions. You know, what is it about all of us, the evolution of who we are and who we want to become, where we've been and where we're going? What is it about that that provides the perfect intersection of science and spirituality? Well, we've got a lot of questions for Steve today. Uh, he, as I said before, he's also the author of in- Integral Consciousness and the Future of Evolution. But beyond all of that, you know, he is somebody that has been out in the world with his work in philosophy and in other, other areas, taking the very, very powerful essence of the question and bringing Bringing it to the forefront to have each of us understand how fascinating it is to be in that place, not just to be looking for answers, but to be looking for the questions of today's time. Steve, thank you for joining me here today. I think this show is going to be a hoot, and I'm not sure how many people have told you that. (laughs)
1: Thank you, Dr. Pat. Thanks for that flattering introduction, and I'm very much looking forward to having this conversation with you.
0: So, you know, let's just take a little snapshot back, if we could go a couple centuries ago, uh, you know, for a minute. I mean, the whole idea, the whole notion of bringing up the idea of evolution – you know, as opposed to a, you know, divinity of creation uh, it got, actually, you know, got a few people a, a little ticked off. And so I think where I want to start in, in this conversation is, you know, this whole idea, the word evolution and, and, and the whole process, the philosophy, why was it or why do you believe it created such a fuss with people and still does today? This idea of oil and vinegar spirituality and evolution not mixing
1: sure i mean evolution is certainly a controversial topic not only within you know the science of evolution and those who certainly ascribe to the larger concept but of course in the media there's lots of uh stories of of conflict between creationists and, and those who believe in science, you know, battles over public school curriculum, and uh, polls are regularly uh, uh, publicized that show that huge percentages of Americans claim not to believe in evolution. So it, it's certainly controversial at many levels, and I think part of it is that the very idea itself kind of uh, uh, produces what it's about. In other words, the idea of evolution itself, causes evolution. It causes the evolution of of consciousness. It causes the evolution of uh, culture and society. And that's certainly what it did when it began to be recognized uh, about 200 years ago at the end of the Enlightenment. Um, And then, of course, Darwin's book on the origin of species, which came out in 1859, really sort of broke the floodgates open um, in intellectual circles of people substituting one kind of creation story for another. You know, so a creation story, everyone uses it, even if they're unaware of it. You can't really have a reality frame unless you've got some idea of some story of where we came from. And evolution is now, you know, the the creation story of those who live in the developed world. And people have thought, or at least, you know, presumed that believing in evolution was a kind of an alternative to having a spiritual worldview or perspective. But as I argue in the book, um, uh, evolution is actually a profound spiritual teaching that uh, that, that we're just beginning to understand, and that not only does it dissolve mythic worldviews, it also dissolves the myth of materialistic worldviews that say that the universe is just a purposeless accident. So there's much more to be learned about evolution, which I define as the universe's ceaseless process of becoming. You know, it's more than just biological descent with modification. It involves everything since the Big Bang. And uh, um, the book explores uh, what the spiritual implications of this new understanding that we have about evolution is and how it can be used and how it can lead to a more evolved world.
0: Well, you know, I'll tell you what I'm really struck by. First of all, I, you know, I, I love reading. I love reading your work. I, I just absolutely love. First of all, I I could listen to you all day long. So if I start to kind of get glazed over here, just jump in for me. All right. <laughs> well, um, you do the same. <laughs> all right. Uh, here's one of the things that I, I'm a visual person. And so I'm, so I'm always struck by what I see first. And, you know, both of your book covers to me are astonishing. Right, uh, it, it, you know when I look at in- integral consciousness, I look at that book cover and I think, "Oh wow, OK, I, I'm getting prepared for something." When I took a look at evolution's purpose, and I saw the what I believe is a rose on the cover, okay. I have to ask you about this.: Yes, yeah. because a rose has become so symbolic in so many ways for so many people, um, you, you know, thousands of years back. And I'm so curious about this picture and its symbolic representation of this book that you've written.
1: Sure. Um, well, first, n- n- neither of my two books are self-published; they're published by third-party publishers. Who of typically, course, they you know, are. In the publishing industry. <laughs> they typically, uh, you know, hire a designer to come up with a cover, and in both right. cases, they did. But the designer sent, um, you know, uh, comps, you know, mock-ups of a variety of different covers. And because i'm not only a philosopher but also an artist you know i'm not only into truth I'm into beauty and, and aesthetics has been a big part of my journey. Uh, I suggested an alternative image for in both cases which the publisher liked better than what the uh, you know the designer had come up with and so in the case of the rose for evolution's purpose um, I was you know stimulated when I first saw the comps from the the designer and who's a very talented designer and I, you know I you know give her credit but you know there were some um, that I didn't like and some that I hated. <laughs> 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 and so that gave me kind of an emotional shot of adrenaline to you know in a kind of a wild moment of creativity just you know search on Google images for the right feeling image and all of a sudden I came up with a close up of a spiral rose unfolding and realized in the Flash. That that was the perfect image because it had so many levels of symbolic, um, you know, significance for the book. Right. I mean, uh, the the symbol of the red rose as a, as a kind of a symbol of eros, which is a major right. theme of the book. It's also an iconic image of beauty, which is another major theme of the book. Uh, the spiral, uh, you know, is is, a, is another theme. As sort of the, as evolution unfolds, it reveals a kind of a spiral pattern, in it's kind of dialectical unfolding, which we can talk about if you like. And then of course. Um, um, uh, the, the, the unfolding petals, the sort of emergence from the, from the center uh, is symbolic of the way evolution has emerged from the center, if you will, of the kind of singularity of the Big Bang. So, so I, you know, but, but besides that, I, it just looked beautiful and sexy, and it seemed to be the perfect image for the book. So I'm glad you like it.
0: I, well, I do like it, and you're right; it is beautiful and it is sexy. And yet, at the same time, y- you know, your book really invites, at least from my point of view, in- invites us to take this journey with you. And it's so interesting you bring up the Big Bang uh, idea. Uh, I worked for a number of years at Bell Laboratories in New Jersey, and you know, uh, the the guys over there at Labs, you know, the the big discovery of the Big Bang, you know, uh, Penzias and so forth. And, you know, we all tried to figure out at the time, you know, what the heck does this got to do with a telephone? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I know you're laughing, right? Microwave
1: uh, radiation. <laughs> right,
0: exactly. Somehow that was a great spin they were able to put on that to get funding for that project, I'll tell you that. Um, but it's interesting how those of us on an average everyday basis working in the halls of these brilliant scientists, who, by the way, every Friday the man brought in bagels uh, for all of us, um, You get to have a heart-to-heart conversation, and that's what I think we're doing with you in this book, that takes us on this journey to understand the necessity of metaphysics, but at the same time, the deliberate intention of scientific points of view. And I wanted you to really talk about whether this is paradoxical or integrative.
1: Sure. Well, Uh, I I think that the the famous uh, integral philosopher Alfred North Whitehead uh, made a quip about the curiousness of of scientists who have a definite purpose of discovering the universe to be purposeless. (laughs) 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 And uh, uh, I try to, in the book, show how the purpose that arises within us, uh is part of the larger purpose uh of the universe as a whole and that doesn't lead directly to you know theism or or a, or a, a kind of a, a the idea of god as the source of the universe the the creative principle behind the unfolding of evolution can be explained by a whole variety of belief systems but what uh, what the facts of evolution is they've accumulated, you know, including the, the evolution of matter, the evolution of life, and then the evolution of human history. When we view these things as one unfolding process, although they're distinct and can't be conflated, they're each part of this universal process of becoming. It becomes completely evident that to explain this as accidental, purposeless, random, or otherwise without any larger meaning or direction, uh, is flies in the face of, of the mounting evidence and defies reason itself and is now more than ever being exposed as sort of an ideological position designed to reinforce a materialistic or atheistic worldview, which you know, isn't all wrong. It isn't all bad. I mean, it, you know, the materialism was a step beyond the mythic in order to break the gravity of the church and the, you know a, a worldview that was in some ways very superstitious and oppressive uh, they had to go in the opposite direction. They had to go. In, they had to embrace a worldview that had that was devoid of any kind of enchantment or any form of spirituality, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which you know of course went too far. And then that opened an opportunity for further cultural evolution in a way that that was uh, attempting to integrate right the the thesis of m- mythic religion with the the antithesis of scientific rationalism. in in a view of, of the world that could recognize spirit without regressing to the mythic and could fully use science without becoming materialistic.
0: You know, the, one of the things that I that I love about what you talk about is been a, a conundrum for a lot of people. And, and I would just want to use a specific a, a example to talk about values. And I think you talk about values and agency in the book. Mm. You know, I went off later on in life to go back to school. You know, after um, a 25 year career, and you know, not not being willing to implement a downsizing. And that actually was my job as an HR executive, right? I mean, that was my job to do that. Downfall, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to to fire people a month away from a, a you know 30 year pension, and so I couldn't do that, you know, for myself for whatever reason I couldn't do that. But I went off. And I went back to school, and I ultimately went and got a doctorate. And and I was fascinated by this whole world of research. And I remember my committee sitting around the table and saying to me, now, you know, this has got to be a a double this study, and it's got to have, you know, objectiveness in it. And, you know, and I said, guys, I'm studying the consequences of breaking promises. I experienced that. How objective can I be? And it's so interesting, this idea of objectivity, right, mm-hmm. and the world we live in and, you know, and consciousness. And I just wonder, you know, is there a cross-section? What are the legs that consciousness stands on?
1: Sure. Well, there are some, a variety of ways to answer that question. I, you know, I want to start by saying that in the book uh, I, I argue for the idea that there are three essential approaches to truth three ways that consciousness can learn about reality one is through you know spirituality spiritual practice Mm -hmm. spiritual teaching another Mm -hmm. is through science and objective research and a third is is by philosophy which doesn't necessarily look at the objective reality but it's not completely subjective or belief system oriented either it deals with what can be known about the world but which is essentially uh beyond science but, but not necessarily all the way into religion. And so just like the legs of the stool, if, if the legs come too close together or, too, or too move too far apart, the, the stool falls over. Right? You want to have a balance between the two. And if we look at history, um, there have been times when one of these approaches, you know, science, philosophy, or religion, has tried to colonize the others. Like before the Enlightenment, right, or, or at the time of Galileo, uh, religion uh, had had captured Science and philosophy. Anything science or philosophy said had to conform to the teachings of the church. And one of the ways that we made progress in the Enlightenment was to, for science to break free of religion, right? For for uh, for eventually Galileo not to be imprisoned. And and so we're seeing something similar in an opposite direction now, where in much of mainstream culture, spirituality and philosophy have been captured by science, right? Science claims to be the only legitimate approach to truth, and therefore anything that's not um, Uh, you know, couched in the terms of of the objective requirements of science is seen as devoid of truth claims, or at least argued, sometimes implicitly, um, sometimes explicitly. But one of the the ways that philosophy can really help us have a greater consciousness of what's real is by serving as a, a kind of a bridge, but also a separating factor between science and spirituality. You know, recognizing that spirituality is very important, but can't, you know, contain the whole, science is very important, it can't contain the whole, and philosophy sort of keeps the two apart, while also at the same time trying to integrate the insights of both um, into a higher synthesis that can benefit the whole. So you know, that's one way of answering your question. Well,
0: I, I love the way you talk about this in the book, and also the way you talk about the evolution of values, which is something that I, I that I think I found very refreshing. Uh, I don't know whether you know this or not, but I actually read the books that people put in front of
1: me. <laughs> it's obvious that you've read mine. I appreciate it.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's one of the, I I think this is one of the books that, you know, from somebody like my my point of view, I'm fascinated by it. I I will be the first to tell you, I, I don't claim to understand everything in here. That's why I'll read it more than once. But one of the things that really stuck with me was when you talk about free will as an organ of perception, for values. And then you talk about the evolution of values. And I wanted to really delve into this with you, because we have heard the term values now in our political system and political campaigns, reality television, politics, the workplace, the repeal of the cycle. We've heard it over and over again, and in, in almost in an instance to say to people, look, You really did value that yesterday, but we're telling you that that's not something of value today. And I'd love for you to talk about this as to how that evolution or how the evolution of values actually contributes to our overall progression of our species.
1: Sure. Excellent question. Um, Let me say first that values itself is a term you know, that has some baggage, right? It's kind of dodgy. <laughs> Uh, You know, the, the the right wing have tried to appropriate it, you know, values voters and, you know, people who are traditional right. or people who are concerned about values. And, of course, uh, you know, I don't see values that way at all. But, but I try to unpack the term a little bit and give it more juice by talking about it as a rubric of, of three kind of primary values or most intrinsic values, which I define as the beautiful, the true, and the good you know these are these are directions of improvement in a way and and the reason that these values evolve is that from the beginning of humanity the reason that we've been able to evolve our consciousness and our culture in ways that our animal cousins you know have not been able to in such a dramatic way is that we can see what's wrong in ways that animals can't we can conceive of a better way and we can therefore improve our conditions so the domain of, of human history, as a domain of evolution, is about the improvement of the human condition. And for at least the last 40,000 years, humans have been trying to improve things. And they 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 what they can improve depends on what they can value. In other words, they're trying to make things more beautiful, more. They're trying to learn what's more real. They're trying to make things better. Those are all defined by what they determine as beautiful, true, and good. And and th- History proceeds in its evolution along those lines. But in history, as we look, the, the most dramatic ways that humans have improved their conditions is by improving their definition of improvement itself. In other words, by defining beauty, truth, and goodness at a higher level, right? Yeah. By, by breaking through and understanding you know, higher levels of beauty, deeper, deeper reaches of truth, and, and, and greater ideals of morality. And so as an example of this, we could point again to this dramatic emergence in consciousness and culture that occurred in the 1700s during the Enlightenment, right, when sort of science was born and democracy was born. You can see this, this sort of new worldview, this new frame of values emerging at the time where people could begin to... Um, See the truths of science. See the truths of philosophy. Imagine a better form of government, right? They, they improved their definition of what was possible, what could be improved, and so we saw, if you will, a new octave of beauty, truth, and goodness, right? Each worldview, each historical, each historically significant stage of human evolution, is in a sense framed, has its worldview, the cell membrane of which is is its values, and right now in America we the population consists of three really historical stages of development that have their own distinct sets of values, right? You have traditionalism, which is a kind of a, in America, it's mostly, you know, kind of a traditional Christian religious worldview, Christian-Jewish religious worldview, and about 30% of the population make meaning according to that worldview. In other words, what's true for them is what's from Scripture. You know, they, they may like science, they may, you know, go to a doctor and use scientific medicine, but if you ask them what's really real, they'll point to Scripture. Then about, right. 50, about 50% are mainstream modernists, you know, those are whom you know for whom science is, is the description of things. And in the last 50 years, there's emerged a kind of a third worldview that's distinct from either traditionalism or modernism. And that goes by many names, you know, the cultural creatives, uh, mm-hmm. progressive, pluralism. I use the term postmodernism to define that. Yeah, that's that.
0: good. I, I call it the now generation. Yeah, and, <laughs> and
1: this is in some ways is the most evolved form of culture that has yet to appear. Right. But but at the same time, you know, like every one of these worldviews, the the very values that they have that allow them to improve things in the unique ways that they do are tied directly to limitations or pathologies, right, or, or uh, blind spots that require further evolution, you know. So none of these worldviews constitutes the end of history, right? There's always further improvement. We can always redefine or improve, if you will, our definition of improvement, and really that's kind of what's animating the perspective um, that uh, that I'm coming from in evolution's purpose, and which is part of a larger kind of avant-garde intellectual movement known as the evolutionary worldview or, or
0: integral. Well, you know, it's so interesting because – I... I've done a couple of uh, talks uh, lately, and one of the things that I used and and caused quite uh, controversy, and I'd love for you to talk about this, because, you know, the interpretation that each of us gets to make, you know, we get to have this free will that operates, and, and we could talk about that as you do. Uh, in the book and the reality of this. But I mean, take a simple, well, I'm going to call it a quote. There are many people that would even argue with me about whether this is actually a quote. But, you know, if you look at some of the biblical statements, uh, and let's just call it uh, for a minute, a biblical statement, the one, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here, see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Hmm. And that simple quote, you, you know, and I don't even ask me where that is in the Bible. I don't know. I think it's Luke or somebody. Mm-hmm. But that particular quote has been translated, retranslated, done over again. But the bottom line is there it becomes controversial, you know, in terms of what folks are willing to believe. So I want to talk with you about this for a minute because from a – it seems to be that the science is is leaning towards that full understanding that we truly have uh, this potential within us uh, to tr- to change the world to create the world to transform ourselves, and yet the attachment philosophically seems to want to point to. Uh, an entity or a god or spirituality, and I'd like to talk about that in terms of what you've discovered, you know, from a scientific point of view, and whether or not we can truly manifest those things in life.
1: Sure. Well, one of the points in the book that I make, and I think is a kind of a big takeaway for evolutionary spirituality in general, is that Mm -hmm. we are agents of Uh evolution. You know, that we're mm-hmm. not just sort of on the side, a strange anomaly, an epiphenomenon. That that human beings or, or free will creatures, if you will, all over the universe, I would su- suspect, are playing an active role in pushing the edge of evolution, right? By by, by trying to improve the human condition and build a civilization toward greater and greater degrees of beauty, truth, and goodness. But unless we're free, unless we can actually bring something free and original into the world, then it's false to be able to claim that we're agents of evolution. You know, we only get to participate in evolution in an authentic, non-deterministic way if... The creator of the universe has shared her prerogatives with us, right? In other words, if we get to be co-creators of the universe and bring forth, uh, you know, what's supposed to be in the course of evolution through our actions, uh, and, and, um, our lives. So right now, there's a lot of pushback about free will, right? You know, Sam Harris has a very famous book that came out recently denying the reality of free will. Charlie Rose has intellectuals and academics on regularly who just with a wave of the hand say that free will is an illusion, Right. I mean, even spiritual teachers are right. are denying it in some quarters, right. and of course, you know, I disagree and and uh, push back. I mean, the book doesn't have a huge section where I try to argue for free will or get you know in the weeds uh, about that. But I think that it's directly experiential. While we may be, of course, we're not entirely free. We're conditioned by our family, by our culture, by our society. We're we're pushed around by you know forces bigger than us. So I'm not claiming, you know, that we're absolutely free in any way. But when it comes to the course of our lives, when it comes to, you know, what we're going to do with, with the, the big decisions in our lives, there is a degree of freedom. And while uh, part of the reason that so many uh, materialists and mainstream philosophers kind of rail against it is because this is really undoes materialism. It's one of the, the essential irreducible arguments that points to a larger spiritual universe. Because if you think about it, if something in your subjective experience, if something in your consciousness could exert causation on the particles in your brain, push those around, so that then your brain then moves your arm and, you know, you can change the world, that's an uncaused cause originating in the human psyche is unexplainable from a materialistic or objectivistic scientific perspective. And yet we all experience it daily, right? We all have the direct experience. So, for someone to argue that there is no free will, not only does it undermine all of the institutions of our society, right? I mean, you can't have law if you can't hold people responsible, right? If we're all just deterministic zombies, then how can you possibly morally place responsibility on anybody? So, uh, free will is, is important from from a social perspective, and, it, and it's, it's 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 directly experiential. So it's it's. It takes more than hand-waving or, or, you know, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. And the extraordinary evidence is that free will is real and, you know, all, all you know, intellectual objections to the contrary. And I think that the reason that we have free will and one of, the, one of the, uh, the, the demonstrations of it is that we can choose to be good, right? We can choose morality, right? Morality itself has no meaning if you couldn't have done otherwise. And so goodness as a reality in the universe can't exist without free will. But it's because we have relative freedom of choice more so than our animal cousins. That's the key thing that allows us to evolve in the ways that we do, right? We're able to improve the human condition because we can perceive how things could be better using our creative imagination, and our free will is what allows us to improve things. If we we could only imagine it and have no ability to create it, right, then the imagination would kind of dry up. But we're excited by the imagination of how things can be better because we can actually go out and make them better, and it's the use of our free will um, that's really the centerpiece of that entire process.
0: I'll tell you, this is so fascinating. I, I have been so uh, wanting to talk with you. Uh, we're going to, you know, Steve, we're going to take a short break. But before we do, what I'd love for you to do is um, tell people how to get a copy of your book and also uh, the best website for them to go to to find out more about you, your work, your your lectures, everything that you're up to.
1: Sure. Of course, well, the headquarters for my work is stevemacintosh.com. And Macintosh is spelled M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H, stevemacintosh.com. And that you can buy the book there. I have DVDs, you know, my books. I have uh, free uh, videos of various talks and interviews that I've given, plus excerpts from the book. And, you know, there's lots of stuff uh, to see and do at the website. Of course, the book's also available on Amazon.com and, you know, Barnes & Noble and, and uh, you know, major book outlets. Uh, and, again, it's called Evolution's Purpose. It's a philosophy book, you know, it's, it's intellectual, but at the same time it's written for a general audience. It's not written for specialists, and I've really done my best to make difficult, challenging concepts uh, understandable and, most more importantly, usable um, by, you know, the average educated
0: person. And I'll tell you, you've done just that. I mean, some of the quotes that you've put in here and some of the philosophies that you represent in the book, are, are, they're just beautiful. And when I introduced you, Steve, I was talking about, you know, how now I've read the book twice and how I have more questions than I originally did. I want to take a short break on the Dr. Patcho here when we come back. What the heck does St. Thomas Aquinas have to do, if anything, with the conversation of Evolution. Well, I can't wait to have you hear what Steve's got to say about that. Fascinating. (laughs) This whole idea, St. Thomas, did he ever think that he would be stepping up and being part of this conversation in this book? Wait till you hear what has to be said about this. Stay tuned, everyone. We'll be right back with the Dr. Pat Show.
1: Welcome to Sisters Talk Radio. Awaken the feminine power that glows in your heart. There are just certain heart-to-heart conversations you can only have with your sisters. The conversations you crave when you need to reconnect. Mona and Savitri explore our feminine power as they look at headline topics and what women are talking about. Join us on Sisters Talk Radio, Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific and 5 p.m. Eastern. Only on TransformationTalkRadio.com.
0: Do you play enough in your life? What if play and the absolutely ridiculous were the place that creativity and your brilliance hide out? Did you know that laughter and play are the elements of change? Let's unleash the playful, creative you. Join Brenda St. Louis on November 20th at 6 p.m. Pacific for a free telecall, a play date with the ridiculous. This is the beginning of a six play dates with the ridiculous series. Sign up now at knowthatyouknow.com. Playdate. Get your silly on and register now.
1: Hi, my name is Dr. Dane here from Access Consciousness. Are you a seeker, a dreamer, one of those people who's always known that there should be greater possibilities available, but haven't yet been able to create it as your life? I'd like to help. Go to creatinggreaterpossibilities.com, where there's a free video and audio series created especially for you. Once again, creatinggreaterpossibilities.com. It's free. And it's designed to give you the actual tools that you need to create the life you've always been looking for. CreatingGreaterPossibilities.com.
0: Did anyone teach you to be a parent? What if there were tools that could make your job a whole lot easier? Gwen Rice invites you to be the questionable parent you truly be in a dynamic teleseries designed to empower parents to know that they know and give you the awareness required to create ease and joy between you and your children. Check out GwenRice.com to learn more and to book a private session or dial 415-235-2807.
1: Get ready for a new and brighter future with the Joseph Gabby Show. Consciously living your destiny. Tune in each Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on TransformationTalkRadio.com to break through stagnation and procrastination and fulfill your life's destiny. This hit show will clear mental, emotional, physical and spiritual stuckness using numerology and an endless list of life-energizing tools live on air. To find out more About Joseph and how to discover the power of blueprint numerology and spiritual healing, visit www.consciouslylivingyourdestiny.com.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome back. For more information about us and the Dr. Pat Show, go to thedrpatshow.com, sign up for our newsletter. We only come at you once a week, and what we do is we tell you about all the really cool shows we've got going on, our guests, our giveaways, and and all the fun we're inviting you to join in on. Um, Thank you all for supporting the show and the network. For all the years you have, um, you know, even today, the two hours I've done earlier today uh, on air and all the callers, all you guys calling into the show and your excitement, enthusiasm, you know, you all inspire me to step out and be a better person. Uh, Steve McIntosh joining me here today. Evolution's Purpose is one of his books, but go to the website. It's really kind of cool if you kind of follow Steve around as well. It's stevemackintosh.com, and it's dot com. And, and just go check it out, and you'll be able to hear him in a couple of videos and find out what his schedule is about and get a copy of his book. Um, you know, Steve, I, I know that you've probably done a bunch of radio shows, and, and I do read these books. And so sometimes I'm drawn to certain, uh, points of the book, uh, or something that I'm reading based on the kind of day that I've had. Today, it happens to be around St. Thomas Aquinas and this, this beauty, truth, and goodness that you've covered so beautifully in the book. And I wanted to talk with you about that and, and why this was such an important Idea philosophy to bring to the forefront in this book of evolution.
1: Sure. Well, the, this um, this idea of the beautiful, the true, and the good mm-hmm. is really the the heart of the thesis of not only evolution's purpose, but my overall work as a writer, and mm-hmm. an author in in the, in the marketplace of ideas here, because I think that these these three values you know expressed as a system expressed as a a kind of a a a three-part just like primary colors right three primary colors can be used to represent the entire visual field three primary values three most intrinsic values in a sense can be seen as the source of all the rest even you know high values like love or freedom or happiness in a way are forms of goodness or forms of truth and beauty And so bringing these out and showing how they're not just subjective projections, right? These aren't just our preferences or predilections. When we recognize value, we're actually seeing literally, in a way, the presence of the infinite shining through into the finite realm. You know, In other words, the, the beautiful, the true, and the good are the, the comprehensible elements of divinity. You know, the way that we can actually experience spirit and use those experiences and our, our free will to create these values and serve others. In other words, the beautiful, the true, and the good, those are what's most real about the world. You know, it's more real than the stuff because it's, it's the most spiritual thing that, that comes into our daily lives, right? I mean, people can have spiritual experiences of samadhi or, you know, some unity experience that's a once-in-a-lifetime transformative experience or a near-death experience. And all that's, of course, you know, wonderful if you can have it. But the beautiful, the true, and the good are forms of everyday spirituality that, that are the, you know, can be used as the rungs of the ladder of our own spiritual ascent and the material of our, of our giving our gift to the world. So understanding what, how the dynamic characteristics of, the, of these forms of quality, these intrinsic values, is really a spiritual practice in itself and seeing how these are central to the process of evolution overall in the universe really helps us get evolution's spiritual message. So uh, go on.
0: I want to ask you this question because I've always been fascinated by this, uh, you know, and especially in the way that you talk about this. And the question I think that came to mind as I was reading this, I was really struck by, you know, I, I love your work, and I was really struck by the way that you've written this so beautifully here. This idea that... Um, you know, how much do culture and subculture play in the level definition of, of, of beauty, truth, and goodness? So let me give you an example of what I mean in, in this question. You know, if you were to ask me 20 years ago, right, maybe 30 years ago, what I thought beauty was or truth was or goodness was, I don't know that I would have been answered that I would give you today. And so I was so curious as to how we come to a universal place when we each, through our own free will, get to define each of these elements. You see what I'm saying?
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. one of the one of the problems that um, that that Values such as beauty, truth, and goodness run into one, one of the reasons that they're they're kind of still countercultural in many ways, and you know not talked about it by mainstream academia.
0: That's right. Is that
1: is that there, there's been an evolutionary process, right? At one time, values were defined first by Plato and then by Aquinas and other pre-modern philosophers as just you know straightforward characteristics of the universe. You know, Plato just talked about them as eternal forms, right? Aquinas mentioned them as elements of being. And, and this was taken for granted by people, intellectuals, thinkers, and, and the society in general, until the birth of science and the Enlightenment. Then as, as the, the dialectic or you know, the, the movement away from a, a, a spiritual worldview, there are many philosophers, beginning with David Hume, who argued that, that the ideas of goodness or beauty, that that was just a projection. That they were not, they're not objective. Indeed, they're completely subjective so there was a time in philosophy where most major philosophies denied what's known as value realism, you know, that values were just seen as perfectly subjective. But, of course, that created all kinds of problems, especially when we began to realize that the environment had an independent value from us, that the value of nature was not simply a human projection, you know, that there was intrinsic value resident throughout nature and that we needed a philosophy that could cope with that. So we can't, you know, we can't go back to a pre-modern platonic conception of, simply objective value and we can't rest in an existentialist idea of subjective value. We have to recognize that they're both in neither, that we're both makers of value and we're finders of it. It requires both the subjective perception as well as the, you know, the the, the, the reality of quality, you know, something is actually there in the universe. And so as our consciousness evolves, as our subjectivity expands, we're able to see the quality of the universe with increasing depth and clarity so what's beautiful the true or the good is dependent upon your location in consciousness if you will but as you evolve uh... your perception of values themselves evolves. so let me give you an example or okay. some quick examples right the value of goodness <clears throat> has evolved throughout human history Uh, And one of the ways we can chart that is by recognizing um, those worthy of moral consideration, right, the circle of those worthy of, of treatment like a family. So at first, you know, in primitive societies, in tribal settings, right, those worthy of moral consideration are, by and large, members of your extended kinship group, right? The tribe are all your blood relatives, and they're worthy of moral consideration, but people from other tribes are often viewed as the enemy. And then a major uh, emergence or evolutionary advance in culture is the the emergence of the great religious civilizations that were able to expand this circle of of moral consideration from beyond the blood-kin relation to those of the same religion. Now, those of different religions were the infidels, and they were the enemies and not necessarily deserving of moral consideration. But even though we condemn an ethnocentric morality now, it was a major step forward from a kind of a tribal or egocentric morality. Then with the emergence of, uh, of modernism, we move from a kind of a religious or ethnocentric morality to a more n- nation-centric morality, where those of the, you know, Americans were worthy of moral consideration even if they were of different religions. And now with the emergence of this kind of postmodern Uh, conception we're moving to a a world-centric estimate like you know not only are all humans worthy of moral consideration but all sentient beings are worthy of moral consideration and and one of the ways we can claim that that is an evolutionary trajectory towards something better is that the uh, the the values the morality is becoming more inclusive right we can see something similar with truth right we move from magical to mythical, to scientific rational, and now to increasingly holistic understanding of what's real or what's true. And this is a progression that, that results in uh, values becoming more inclusive, more accurate, more powerful, uh, and hopefully uh, more moral.
0: You know, and I loved when you talked about Whitehead in the book. And I I think what you said is there were certain definitions, certain things that, you know, you quoted. Uh, For example, one of the things I think was that, you know, um, in a description he was describing, uh, I think, intellectual beauty as delicate adjustment of thought to thought. And as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, you know, let's fast forward to the time we live in now. Um I, I'm not sure, you know, if, if, if you, you kind of grew up in the 60s like I did, but, you know, I worked at the telephone company at a time when cell phones didn't exist and sat in a boardroom with these guys arguing over whether or not women were going to like caller ID and almost didn't include it in the technology. And here we are today. We are so connected. This show going out into like 162 countries and, and amazing how this conversation will have a ripple effect. You know, what role from a scientific point of view now, from a technological point of view, what does that do to some of these ideas about delicate adjustment of thought to thought when we're, we're being bombarded um, by so much information? Or doesn't it matter? well i you know i think
1: that the the rise of the internet and the astounding connectivity of the 21st century like all forms of evolutionary advance you know technological or social that there are you know what we know as dignities and disasters right tremendous yeah. benefits and yes. new problems right that yes. we didn't have before yes. and you know, the greater the benefits in some ways the more uh, perplexing the problems Right, so the internet is a marvelous thing. I've certainly benefited from it, but I've also been vexed and frustrated by it, and, and it's, you know, caused all kinds of grief. Um, and you know, obviously we're not going backward. You know, none of us want to eliminate the inter- internet, but we'd love to improve it, right, to make it more trustworthy, to get rid of some of the darkness in it, and, and to make it serve us in a, way, uh, uh, in, a, in a way that's not trying to control us. And, you know, these are the challenges of the 21st century, and, uh, you know, I think technology will pose a challenge, but I think we've got, in in some ways, even greater challenges uh, like global warming and nuclear proliferation.
0: You know, one of the the things you talk about in in the book is you say – something like our new frame of reality need not banish or replace robust spiritual beliefs. Uh, And I want to talk about that for a moment because um, there was a study done uh, across the United States and they picked out certain cities, right? Mm -hmm. And they looked at certain cities and, you know, they, they, they they looked at the city of Seattle, and this is, you know, this is where I live right now. It's really interesting. the minister gets up in church and starts talking about this and says, oh, my gosh, we made it on the map. We are the least religious city in the country but the most spiritual.
1: Mm.
0: What kind of sense does that make to you? I mean, and, and really, it, it, I think like a thousand of us walked out of there and started to look for the study to figure out what does that mean? and i sure. wanted to talk to you about that a little bit is there a rise in spirituality that goes counter to um, people's you know structuring religion around their, their lives or are we all rising up to the top in some way right. or or neither of those
1: things yeah well no that gives you a perfect opportunity to, to talk about the evolutionary perspective how it you know like in the renaissance you know, we, we, most of us have seen the, the sort of the moment where the artist recognizes perspective, and there's like a new depth, a new ability to see the world. It used to be flat, now it's 3D, right. and that's kind of what this evolutionary view does: is it helps us see things in, in, in as developmental trajectories rather than as static categories. So rather than seeing, you know, the religious as sort of backward and mythic, and and the spiritual as somehow, you know, free from that, I think a more evolutionary the evolutionarily sophisticated way of looking at it is seeing that every great form of spirituality, every one of the world's religions in a way, <clears throat> is a line of development that is, it is evolving from its origins in either you know, tribal or traditional uh, uh, historical contexts. And but these these forms of, of spirituality are are evolving through these stages of history. So there's a you know, there's a traditional version of Christianity and a kind of a scientific rational version of Christianity and a kind of a postmodern countercultural version of spiritual of of Christianity and now a kind of an evolutionary version which transcends the limitations of progressive spirituality. mm mm-hmm. And, and so when people describe themselves as spiritual but not religious, and there's a huge percentage of Americans who do so, right. um, the way we interpret that is that they're saying they're, 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 they recognize that the universe is not just you know matter in motion, right? That there's something spiritual going on here in the universe and within us, um, but they're not willing to accept a, uh, a traditional or, or mythic explanation of that, right? They, they haven't they haven't really heard a, a, a better explanation, but they're not going to go for either atheism or traditional religion. But, but and and one of the, uh, the the things of emergent progressive spirituality, what we used to call, the New Age, right, but now that's right. become a kind of a term of derision, and, and it right. stands for some of the, you know, the more lowbrow aspects of progressive spirituality, but progressive spirituality is full of vibrant intellectual currents and all kinds of really great thinkers and, and beautiful teachings that are useful to every level of, of society, so I want to applaud that and recognize that without the emergence of progressive spirituality, this evolutionary view would be impossible. But just like, you know, progressive spirituality transcends earlier forms of spirituality, this evolutionary view tends to do the same with progressive spirituality by bringing forth, by carrying forward its achievements, right? Its pluralism, the way that it's invited all the wisdom traditions. You know, we we, we discovered all the great rich spiritual teachings of the East, right? In Buddhism and Hinduism. We discovered ancient shamanic indigenous religions and new forms of spirituality like eco-spirituality. You know, in, in the marketplace of ideas in progressive culture, uh, you know, spirituality is really thriving. But be, to the larger culture, right, to modernism, to the mainstream, progressive spirituality looks flaky. It looks too countercultural. It looks like it's transcended but not included, right, uh, the important insights of science. It sort of right. cherry-picks science. It has pseudoscience. It doesn't sort of uh, purge the non-true elements. And, again, that's an example of the 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 – the progress and the pathology being linked together, right? Progressive spirituality makes progress by having all of the different forms of spirituality welcome, right? But it, it but that very welcoming pluralism leads to, uh, you know, it's difficult to weed out, um, you know, the truth from the untruth. There's no standard of comparative excellence between the various forms of spirituality that exist within that culture. So evolutionary spirituality tries to sort of provide spiritual leadership to the society and, and give a better example of, the, of spirituality to those who consider themselves spiritual but not religious by doing a better job of incorporating science, by taking science on its own terms, and by uh, recognizing that, as Emerson said, every natural fact is a symbol of some higher spiritual fact. And evolution is, in a sense, in some sense, the, the, the biggest natural fact, there is, right? It's, it's it, evolution isn't just something that's happening within the universe. It's more accurate to say that the universe is evolution happening. And if we can see this from a, a you know, scientific material perspective of just the, the, you know, the material changes that have led from the Big Bang to us, and we then recognize that this has a deep spiritual message of the universe improving and using us as agents thereof. If we can begin to see that the evolution of consciousness and culture, you know, is real evolution and our ability to contribute to it. Um, is, is really how we grow spiritually, uh, and, and the, 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 the sort of the way that, that the beautiful, the true, and the good have been the target of evolution. Now, evolution, even though it has regressions and setbacks and, you know, there's nature red and tooth and claw and many ways to interpret it that don't involve growth to goodness, as the philosophy of the book makes clear, evolution has been aiming at value for 13 billion years. And anything that's been aiming at value, relatively consistency for that for that much time, and that is waking up within itself, you know, as, as we're being able to see, you know, through nature's own eyes, the beauty, truth, and goodness that's in nature. Um, you know, this is this is clearly a, a, a spiritual message that we can no longer afford to ignore. So well, you. We, we, you know, one more thing, and that is just to say that that we are in a time in history when, you know, our, the developed world needs spiritual leadership. But progressive spirituality hasn't taken us all the way there. It, you know, it's, it's still countercultural. It's still uh, not uh, recognized by the corporate media or academia or any of the places that need this kind of leadership. And so the challenge of our age is to produce a form of spirituality that, um, that can be more integrative, that can bring all these forms of spirituality, the traditional, the modernist, and the postmodern, together in, in a new synthesis. And this is what this evolutionary worldview actually does.
0: Well, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, I, first of all, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I and, mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I could just go on and on and on, and I hope you will come back. I mean, I would love to have you on during one of the m- daytime shows uh, my again. Uh, uh, yeah, I think please. it's just wonderful. I mean, I. I, I love the kind of questions you bring to the forefront that, that helps all of us engage. And, you know, what some people would say the meaning of life. And, you know, many people thought the world was going to end on the 21st. And, you know, for me, I think the ge- great gift and the whole idea of the Mayan calendar and all of, you know, the pomp and circumstance that led up to that opened us up to a, a new world of ancient traditions that that came to the forefront. You know, I, I read a statistic that more people went to Peru years uh, than just about any of the place on the planet. And, uh, and, and And this really, to me, is what I love about what you do you really ask us to take a look at a bigger systematic picture if i'm correct here steve i think that's what you're saying or, or am i off on that
1: no i mean i'm just i'm i'm trying to show that the science that we take for granted right the science that's well established like the science of the big bang or the science of evolution that that in that science is you know the voice of god telling us about the nature of reality you know right. because it's it's you know truth it leads to more truth. You know, truth is like a sort of an opening into the infinite. And if we we, we, if we can really find the things which are you know the biggest truths we can know, we can unpack the dimensions of those truths uh, and and have relative
0: confidence that we're to something real. I love it, Steve McIntosh. Everyone, Steve, thank you so much for doing what you do, and thank you for joining me here. One last question for you: What's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with here tonight?
1: Well. I, I could say that that we become more evolved and the world becomes more evolved as we experience and create the beautiful, the true, and the good you know that that uh, that that we are agents of evolution that our purposes are its purposes.
0: Mm. Thank you so much be- you, it's beautiful, beautiful talking with you. Uh, thank you so much. um one more time, let's tell everyone how they can get a copy of your book and how they can find out more about you.
1: Right, Steve um, you know, amazon.com, the book's Evolution, Evolution's Purpose. And then uh, my previous book, Integral Consciousness, serves as a kind of a, a basic introduction to this integral way of seeing. And Evolution's Purpose sort of brings it to a, a, a more mainstream, you know, modernist audience uh, by really showing that this creation story of our age is a profound spiritual teaching.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Steve. Everybody, what a great conversation. The book is loaded. It is a beautiful, beautiful journey that you let upon to only answer the questions with more questions, but to find some peace in knowing that we truly do have free will to decide yeah, what, the, what things mean, Steve. Thanks for remind, reminding me of that. Oh, man. Thank you all for tuning us in, turning us on. We'll see you next time on The Dr. Pat.
1: Thanks again, Dr. Pat.
0: All right. You're stepping down,
1: you're so fine.
0: Somehow, oh, someday,
1: not somehow, not maybe. We're gonna make it out, all right, just not right now. And speak well of a stranger's soul, for you never know when it's your last day. Final breath throwing your gypsy dance on a curtain call.
0: Take your last bow. Transformation talk radio, a higher consciousness perspective. The hosts on Transformation Talk Radio offer a positive and new paradigm shift, a new vision for a collective future. They are empowering and